0: Hey guys, Eric Lindeen here. I'm the lead pastor of Mosaic Church in Maple Grove, Minnesota. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, encourages you, and transforms you, and that this is just the beginning of a conversation between you and Jesus. Enjoy the message. Yeah, we're in this series called Rhythms, practicing the way of Jesus together in our city and we're looking at the different practices that Jesus had. Two weeks ago we talked about the learning circle and how when we come to these defining moments, instead of letting them just pass by us, we stop and then we have that repent where we we discuss with others and then believe and then how do we uh, step into action and learn from what God is trying to teach us. Then last week it was eating and drinking with other believers as we had our church picnic and today we're talking about preaching the Gospel and for the series what we're doing is we're kind of camping out in mark one that's kind of our home base and then we're bouncing around to different places from there kind of looking at a, a kind of a week in the life of Jesus and how his rhythms and then kind of supporting passages so today's actual verse uh, is the same text as two weeks ago why don't you stand as I read god's word this morning? This comes from mark one fourteen through fifteen and today I, I told my team we're going like Old school, whatever you want to call it. We have no inserts, no sermon slides, so you just got to listen and follow along. Uh, You can take notes on your phone if you want, but uh, Mark 1, 14 through 15. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Uh, Let's pray. God, just one more time, we just want to come before you in prayer and say thank you. Thank you for your word. Uh, God, as we... Look at what the gospel is and the power of the gospel and how we share the gospel. I pray, God, that my words would be clear, uh, that everyone here in the room, everyone who's watching online or who'll watch later, God, they will receive from your spirit what you need them to receive. God, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for entrusting us with the best news of all. In your name we pray. Amen. You can take a seat I'm someone, I really enjoy podcasts, and so I will get into different podcasts and then listen to them for a while, then I'll get a little burned out and stop listening to them. Uh, A great podcast, if you're looking for something, it's called This American Life with Ira Glass, uh, it's an NPR podcast. Um, if you're more on the conservative right, just because it's NPR, don't write it off. Um, but it, it is really good podcast about just different stories. And one of the stories that Ira Glass was sharing a couple years back really captivated me. And I talked about this a couple years ago. Um, but it was the story of, of an attorney named Roy Lester. And why would a very wealthy New York attorney sue the state of New York for discrimination. Well, Roy Lester, uh, he was this uh, high-powered attorney, but also was a lifeguard over the summer. And the state of New York changed their um, policies that to do your qualifying swim, you had to wear a Speedo. Now, you wouldn't have to wear a Speedo while you're on uh, site uh, being the lifeguard, but to actually qualify, you had to wear this. And so Roy did not want to wear a Speedo, even though he was a very fast swimmer, and so he sued the, New city of, uh, the state of New York uh, to not have to wear this. And it's like, why would you do this? You're 66 years old, you're an accomplished attorney, making really good money, but still, Why are you lifeguarding every summer at the age of 66? Ira asks him. And he barely understands the question. He says even when he was in law school in California, he would come back every summer to lifeguard at Jones Beach near New York City. And here's what Roy Lester said of why a 66-year-old attorney would still want to lifeguard over the summers as this kind of part-time job. He says... The exhilaration of a good rescue is unlike anything you've ever had. I sit here shuffling papers in my office. I wouldn't call it exciting. I wouldn't call it rewarding. But when you're up there on this stand and you see someone who needs rescuing, all of a sudden, there is nothing else in the world. You're only focused on getting from your stand to that victim in the water. There's nothing like the exhilaration of a good rescue. Over the course of his life, he'd rescued over 1,000 people from the swirling, whirling currents of death in the ocean. And I think of David Hasselhoff in Baywatch. And, you know, you figure he rescued two people per episode over 10 years. Roy has twice as many rescues still as uh, the Baywatch TV show. The exhilaration of a good rescue is unlike anything you've ever had. Have you ever experienced anything like that? See, I think we're wired up as people to make a difference in our lives. Roy said shuffling papers in his attorney's office, it was just kind of blah. But there's something about a rescue that exhilarates us and says, this is what I was made for. See, I think we're designed to help save people. Something springs to life when you see someone who's drowning or who's in a burning building. Where does that come from? See, pure secular thought would say as we evolved, we need to protect the tribe. But at the basis of, of our needs, though, is self preservation and survival of the fittest. So, what would cause someone to jump in swirling waters of death and save someone they don't even know? Well, I think we were designed to help people. I think that thing comes from God. The Bible says that we are created in the image of God and God's heart is to seek and save the lost. Because we reflect who God is, we have this innate desire to help save people. See, God's word tells us we have a mission and that mission is to go into the world to rescue and redeem the captives, to heal the hurting, and to introduce hopeless people to the hope found in Jesus. Amen? Why do we exist as a church? To help people love God, serve others, and make disciples. See, as a church, we've said, we don't have members, (laughs) no members. But we hope that when you join Mosaic, you're joining a movement. And instead of joining being a member, like you join Lifetime or Crunch Fitness and saying, what can I get out of this? We hope you see yourself not as a member, but as a partner, someone who is called by God, set apart by God. To partner with other believers to help more and more people be rescued and redeemed and learn what it means to love God, to embrace the love of the Father, to serve others and help others follow him as disciples. But maybe this morning you're saying, hold up, Eric. What you're talking about when you're talking about preaching the gospel and and helping save the lost sounds a lot like this perhaps dirty word that maybe is triggering for you, evangelism. (laughs) Maybe you grew up in an environment that that word now has caused some triggers. Perhaps, like me, maybe you grew up in an evangelism strategy where maybe you were taught to go door to door, knock on someone's door, and ask, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go? That sounds a little creepy, right? (laughs) Maybe not the best way to start a conversation, talking about death. I think because of that, most of us, I think, prefer to kind of keep our heads down, to mow our neighbor's lawn, and then hope that somehow they figure out that Jesus is king of the universe, right? And you think, well, who am I to judge? Who, you know, you just do you, you know, uh, it feels, I think, immoral to preach the gospel to a pluralistic culture whose highest value is tolerance, Never mind all the Gospels that are preached to us all the time. Whether it's the Gospel of upward mobility or careerism or work hard to get more or the Gospel of gender theory and sexuality or whatever it is. The truth is we are preached Gospels at us all the time. What did Jesus say in Mark 16, verse 15 through 16? After he rose from the dead, he appeared to his disciples and said, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Matthew records it this way in Matthew 20, verse 19. Right before Jesus ascends back to the Father, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, Talmudim, learners, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus says, go preach the gospel to the lost. That is your mission. Now perhaps you even hear that word, the lost. You're like, Eric, 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 that sounds very evangelical. And we know we don't want to be those evangelicals because they vote for a certain person their political party. We don't use words like lost anymore. Well, this week as I was kind of doing some research, I ran across a quote by David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace was a novelist, essayist, um, lauded by many secular thinkers as as just a wonderful thinker. And in a Salon article, this quote really stuck out to me. This is someone who does not know God at the age of 46, at achieving the heights of wealth and popularity and, and uh, literature, committed suicide. Before that, in this interview, here's what he says. He says, there's something particularly sad about it, something that doesn't have much to do with physical circumstances or the economy or any of the stuff that gets talked about in the news. It's more like a stomach-level sadness. I see it in myself and my friends in different ways. It manifests itself as a kind of lostness. Whether it's unique to our generation, I really don't know. I was white, upper-middle class, obscenely well-educated, and had way more career success than I could have legitimately hoped for and was sort of adrift. A lot of my friends were the same way. Some of them were deeply into drugs. Others were unbelievable workaholics. Some were going to singles bars every night. You could see it played out in 20 different ways, but it's the same thing. I get the feeling that a lot of us privileged Americans as we enter our early 30s have have to find a way to put away childish things and confront stuff about spirituality and values. David Foster Wallace, a brilliant secular thinker who wrote a two-page letter to his wife before he went and hung himself on their back deck. How does he describe our generation as Lost? See, the reality is we don't like to talk about lost. We don't like to talk about evangelism. But there's so many lost people. And they see no hope. Yesterday, we were driving down to Lake Harriet to go hear some music. And I think music peaked at 1999. And so we rarely listened to anything after the year 2000 in our car. And so my kids know a lot of 90s music, and I continually test them. And um, sadly, a lot of those artists met very sad endings. And so we were listening, and the band Stone Temple Pilots comes on, Scott Weiland. And so I was kind of quizzing them. Hey, who is this? And I was like, yeah, this, this is a great artist. Sadly, he died here in Minnesota of an overdose of drugs. And it just having the conversation in the van, here's a guy who's good-looking, dated models, you know, sold millions and millions of records. A wonderful artist, and yet there was a lostness, a darkness inside of him that he could not cover up with illicit drugs. So my other favorite artists: Chester from uh, Lincoln Park, uh, Chris Cornell uh, from Soundgarden, an audio slave, committed suicide in the last couple years. What is it about some of these, my favorite musical artists who don't know Jesus and they try to cover it up with with dating and and drugs and all these things and yet they end their life in darkness and the answer is they're lost. We can't pretend that people around us are not lost. And so just to have the philosophy, hey, you do you, you take care of you, I'm going to believe what I believe, I'm going to be tolerant and perhaps do some good deeds, that's not Enough. See, you and I are here today because someone was courageous enough to preach the gospel to you. Perhaps it was your parents who were invited to a Bible study or an Amway meeting. <laughs> Perhaps it was a Billy Graham on TV Maybe it was that Sunday school teacher when you're four or five years old and give up their time to tell you about Jesus. See, at some point, all of us, someone took the time to preach the gospel to us, to share a reason for hope that God loves us. And so this is something that we are all called to do. Mortimer Arias, a South American theologian, says it this way. He says, every generation of Christians has the unique and non-transferable responsibility of sharing the good news with its own generation. This is our time. We have the responsibility to share the gospel in our generation here. So today... We're just going to look at what is the gospel, the power of the gospel, and how do we share the gospel. Number one, what is the gospel? Going back to Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to 15, it says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospels. Well, here's the answer. What is the gospel? This is why they pay me the big bucks, why I've had seven years of education in this. The gospels are the gospel. There you go. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that is the gospel. I think we lose sight of that. Everything that Jesus does in the gospels, that is the gospel. It's not just, hey, where are you going to go when you die? See, gospel means good news. It was commonly used in Jesus' day for royal proclamations. Gospel is not a Christian word. It was a word that was used in this context. So perhaps you know, Julius Caesar, he kind of rises to power in the Roman Empire. Then he is betrayed and killed. And so then there's a mad scrambling. Who's going to take over? And Mark Antony and Cleopatra, they're fighting with uh, Octavian. And, And then finally Octavian wins. And Mark Antony and Cleopatra end up in Egypt. And then Octavian changes his name to Caesar Augustus. And so then what happens is a gospel is proclaimed. The good news see in the roman empire when a new emperor came to the throne there'd be a lot of uncertainty somebody just died julius caesar is there going to be chaos is society going to collapse are there going to be pirates you know on the waters are we going to have no food to eat and the good news they would say here's the gospel now of caesar augustus we have a new emperor he is the son of god come to bring peace to the world we're going to have justice and prosperity isn't that great now, of course, most people in the Roman Empire knew this was rubbish because it's just another aristocrat who's going to do the same thing as the other ones, but this was the rhetoric of the Roman Empire. And so Paul uses this language and the gospel writers of gospel, this proclamation, they say, this is actually the real gospel news. N.T. Wright says it this way, uh, Bishop of Durham in England. He says, the gospel is the royal announcement The crucified and risen Jesus who died for our sins and rose again according to the scriptures has been enthroned as the true Lord of the world. The gospel is about Jesus, not about us. I think sometimes that we lose sight of that. The good news is that the king of the world has been enthroned, that he has defeated sin and death, and now he invites us to participate in his kingdom life. See, we have a too small view of the gospel when it's just about us and where are you going to go when you die. The good news is that God, through Jesus, has brought together the whole history of Israel. That they have failed their calling, but now through the person of Jesus, they're going to fulfill what they're called to do. And now God is going to fulfill his promises. And they come together, the nation of Israel and God, through the man Jesus, both God and man. And he dies on the cross, but then he ascends, he rises again. And he's enthroned now as king of the world. That is the good news. That Jesus has defeated the powers of sin and death and darkness. And now we get to participate with him in this kingdom good news. See, the gospel isn't just about life after death. What the gospels talk about more is life after life after death. It's not a two-stage thing. It's actually a three-stage thing. See, yes, you can know eternal life here on earth, and then you die, you get to go to heaven and be with Jesus but it doesn't stop there. The Bible tells us in Revelation that heaven then is going to come to earth to a new and redeemed earth. And God will make his dwelling place here. And this will be a perfect and restored earth. And we will have a new flesh. And in some way we don't fully understand it, we'll have these redeemed bodies. Not just some soul you know out there playing a harp, but no real flesh and blood united with our souls. That's life after life after death. That is the good news. As King Jesus will right every wrong, every wrong will be turned backwards, every tear wiped away. Everyone is welcomed. That is the good news. King Jesus is coming to establish his kingdom, and we now wait in this moment to announce this good news. And King Jesus gives everyone the opportunity to say, Do you want to bow the knee to me? To say to God, thy will be done. Or to say, Jesus, I want nothing to do with you. And Jesus will say to you, okay, thy will be done. And you can have an eternity apart from King Jesus, apart from everything that is good and true and light and everything that is wonderful. That is your choice. See, King Jesus, he's a good king. And when he comes back, when he restores earth the way it's supposed to be, as a good king, he can't allow people into his kingdom who aren't wanting to become like him, to be changed and and to walk in love and truth. And for those who reject him, they have to be separated and set apart. Now we can get into all of eternity, what that look like, but the important thing is that the gospel is not just about life after death, it's about life after life after death and about King Jesus and what he is doing and how we are participating with him That is the good news. King Jesus invites us into his kingdom family. What about the power of the gospel? We see the power of the gospel really in the book of Acts. And one of my favorite stories is in Acts 13, 1 through 3. It says this, Now there was in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and set them off. What we see here is that because of the power of the gospel, the church was a multicultural mosaic. See, our author, Dr. Luke, takes care to point out that the church leadership in Antioch was multicultural. Of the five leaders mentioned, one is from the Middle East, one is from Asia, one is from the Mediterranean, and two from Africa. What a beautiful mosaic. When we first meet Barnabas in Acts 4.36, it says, Thus Joseph, who's also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas, he's all in on this new kingdom life. Like when the apostles rename you, that's when you know you're in. He says, hey, I'm Joseph. I'm here in the new church. And they're like, no, no, no. We've been watching you, Joseph. And you speak words of life and encouragement. So now we're going to change your name to Barnabas. He's like, no, no, no. My mama named me Joseph. Like, that's good. We like your mama. But your name is now Barnabas. That he was known as someone who spoke life over others. He was an encourager. You've ever known someone like that? That's, that's what we want to be like. Speaking life Encouragement. And not only had his spirit and temperament been changed by the gospel, but his hold on wealth and what had been given to him by God was completely loosened by the beauty of the gospel. Dr. Luke says that Barnabas believed so much in the mission of the church that he sold his cabin up north. He brought the money and proceeds to the apostles and said, hey, use this to spread the gospel. That's who Barnabas is. Now there's also Saul in this leadership. We meet Saul in Acts chapter 8. It says, and there was There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. How different are Barnabas and Saul? They're in the same city. Barnabas is selling everything he has to build the church. He's speaking words of encouragement. Saul is dragging off Christians into prison. Uh, The men and the women, he's doing using all his wealth to try to destroy the church while Barnabas was trying to build the church in Jerusalem. And surely Barnabas knew some of those people whose doors Saul had kicked down and dragged off to prison. So how in the world are Barnabas and Saul now working together to build the church in Antioch? Because the gospel reconciles people you think would never be reconciled. That's the power of the gospel. The gospel has transformed them so much that now they they partner for building the church in some of the most difficult scenarios. They're willing to die for the gospel together. It's amazing. The gospel reconciles people who once were enemies. And there's three more guys listed. The first is Mannion. We're going to call him just Manny. And Dr. Luke says that he was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. If you remember the Christmas story, Herod the Great was the one who, when the wise man didn't return back to him, he said all two-year-olds need to be killed two and younger because he was worried about losing his throne. On top of that, Herod the Great had his brother-in-law and mother-in-law executed and his second wife executed. This is a dysfunctional family. So his son, Herod the Tetrarch, that's Herod Antipas, he's a train wreck as well. What we know about Herod is that he married his stepbrother's ex-wife. How awkward is that at family reunions? It's like, hey, Philip, thanks for divorcing your wife so that I could marry her. He's the one who had John the Baptist beheaded and killed, and apparently Manny was childhood friends and best friends with this Herod. (laughs) And now he's a leader in this church. We also have Simeon called Niger, which is Latin for black. Every commentator, every church historian says that he came from Africa, his skin was black. So we've got Barnabas from Cyprus, Simeon, a black man, Lucius from North Africa, Manny, a Palestinian Greek who was childhood friends with the Herodian mafia, and finally, of Saul of Tarsus, who was murdering Christians. This is who God brings together to be the leadership of this church. And what could bring them together? Only the power of the gospel. So the gospel brings people together that otherwise have nothing else in common. We talk about this all the time, that what unites us in the gospel is way more than what divides us. It doesn't matter your views on politics or or Packers and the Vikings or whatever it might be. The gospel unites us. The good news that God has come back through the person of Jesus and he destroyed sin and death and everything now is in heaven as king of the world and one day is coming back and invites us into his kingdom reign. That is the gospel. How do we share this gospel? That through Jesus, Israel fulfilled its purpose to be a light to the nations and God fulfilled his promise to make things right and to make a way for us who are lost to be found. This Jesus died for our sins and rose again according to the scriptures and has now been enthroned as the true king of the world. How do we share this good news? Well, number one, I think it is good to mow your neighbor's yard, to to do good deeds, but we also have to actually share the gospel. We do have to use our words. I think many of us, it's just a lot easier to let our actions speak, but there are times when we need to speak But that starts with a relationship. I think there are times and a place to plant seeds, and I've done this, um, having conversations with homeless men on the streets of Minneapolis or in a coffee shop. But the reality is, I I think those kind of quick drive-bys, you're you're not going to see a lot of fruit. And so what you and I have to do is we have to develop relationships and friendships with people who do not yet know King Jesus and have bowed the knee to him. And through time, we can share our story. How King Jesus has changed our life. How the Holy Spirit helped heal our hearts when dealing with immense grief and pain. See, I think many people don't share their faith because they don't know how to bring it up. But as you listen to someone's story, then you can share your story. I'm going to share a quick acronym. And... uh, this can be, a, acronyms can be a little cheesy, but I do find them helpful, and this comes from uh, Greg Steer, and his an organization called Dare to Share, and I'm going to send this out in my weekly email, but he used the word gospel as an acronym, and it really does help you in a way to, to share this, and so again, I'm going to email this out this week, but just real quick, using this, the, the word gospel, this is something that you can use as well, when you're just like, I don't know how to, where to get started, so it starts with G. God created us to be with him, and it really starts in the beginning of our Bible. God created us. God created us for a purpose, for a reason. But God created us to have a relationship with him. God created us to be with you. But the O, but the problem is our sins separate us from God. I think everyone understands there's something in us that is broken and hurting, and, and we mess up, and we don't do the good we want to do, and we, 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 we make mistakes, and so our sins separate us from God's. And then the S, sins cannot be removed by good deeds. There's not enough good deeds that can outweigh it. Good deeds alone are not enough. P, paying the price for sin, Jesus died and then he rose again. Jesus paid that price for us once and for all. The E, everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life. And the L, life with Jesus starts now and lasts forever. Eternal life starts now and lasts forever. And so you don't have to like memorize this exactly, but it can help you have this framework as you're sharing the story of the gospel. And someone's talking to you like, hey, what do you believe? You can even ask someone first, hey, a coworker, hey, what do you believe? Tell me what your beliefs. Ask some questions. Be curious. And then perhaps they're going to ask you, well, what do you believe about life? Like, well, I believe God created us to have a relationship with him. But, you know, we, our sins separate us from God. There, there's something there. And, and, and really, I believe that these sins cannot be removed by good deeds. There had to be a price that was paid for that. And so paying the price for our sins, Jesus, he died on the cross for us, and then he rose again. And I believe that everyone who bows the knee to Jesus, everyone who trusts in him, God says you will be saved and you can receive eternal life and life that's eternal starts here and now and extends into heaven and the good news is that there's not just life after death, there's life after life after death and God's coming back to restore his kingdom here on earth where everyone is welcome. Isn't that good news? And so I want us to have these conversations and perhaps after you share, just ask these two questions. Number one, does that make sense? What I just shared and is anything holding you back right now from putting your faith in Jesus? That second question is so important. You know, over the last seven years, you know, I, I've been fortunate enough to, uh, I, I think 12, 15 people, I think, um, mostly at, at Starbucks, um, face-to-face, and, and, and talking about it, and asking that question, though, is there anything that stops you right now from making that decision to trust in Jesus, to confess your sins, and to join the family of God? I think it's that question that can be really hard. But by asking that question, I've had the opportunity to lead a dozen or so people across that line of faith. Just one-on-one conversations. And Like... Roy Lester, the attorney from New York, said, there's nothing like the exhilaration of a good rescue. There's nothing like it. Watching the shame and brokenness fall off their shoulders. As a youth pastor, leading many students to follow Jesus. In our pre-service prayer, though we, we did talk, though, the parable of the sower, and our kids are talking about the back there. Jesus says, the gospel is like a farmer who, who he throws seed on the ground. Some seed lands on the road, and, and there's just it, it's hard. And at this time, you know, the birds just come and take it away, and, and maybe they're just not ready to hear it at all. Some there's rocky ground and, and 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 the seed goes down and then it shoots up, but there's no roots, and so then. They just kind of fall away. And over the last number of years as a church planner and before that as a youth pastor, sadly I've seen that many, many times. Where the gospel goes in and they, they shoot up, but there's no deep roots and then they fall away. Or perhaps they say the gospel is also like the seed that is sown, but then there's weeds and then the cares of the world choke it out whether it's a job or uh, choosing weird spirituality. But then, also the gospel is like good soil. That it's thrown, then you reap a harvest 10, 20, 30, 40 times. And I've also seen that. As followers of Jesus, our responsibility is to preach the gospel, to share the gospel, to proclaim the good news, We can't control the soil. And so listen to the Spirit. Have those conversations. Share the good news of Jesus. But then the rest is out of your hands. We can't hold ourselves responsible when someone shoots up, but then there's no roots. Or when the carriers of the world drown them out. Or when they're just not ready to receive it. Our job is to sow. We can't be concerned about the quality of the soil. Thank you so much for joining us on the Mosaic Maple Grove podcast. I want to encourage you to take the message you just received and allow it to go deeply into your soul. Let Jesus do the deep work that only he can do. A special thank you to everyone who gives to Mosaic Maple Grove. Your generosity allows this message to go out into the world. You can be a part of the Mosaic tribe by going to mymosaicchurch.com. You can also subscribe, rate, and share this podcast with your friends and family. Thanks again for listening. Grace and peace, my friends.